Hi, and welcome to chapter 10 of The Beginning of Infinity, A Dream of Socrates. This chapter I'm going to present in two parts. There's rather a natural divide, I seem to think, between the conversation that goes on between Hermes and Socrates, and then the next conversation which happens without Hermes, but with Socrates and his followers, mainly Plato. Um, I doubt if David Deutsch had this in mind at all, but I like to think that Hermes is either a traveller from the future, could be even David himself going back to speak to Socrates about epistemology, or, and this might be even more bizarre, Hermes represents the creative process itself, mysterious and godlike in its capacity to conjure knowledge. Or maybe, of course, Hermes is just Hermes. And this chapter is, of course, primarily about epistemology. It's a fun and condensed form of the basic themes that appear as far back as in chapters 3, Problem Solving, 4, Criteria for Reality, and chapter 5, Virtual Reality, from David's previous book, The Fabric of Reality. I had some trouble trying to figure out how I would actually read this particular chapter because the entire chapter is a dialogue, or basically the entire chapter is dialogue, or even a play of sorts. I hope my solution to this issue of what to do about reading it uh, isn't too distracting. I'm not reading the whole thing, of course, as usual. I'm just taking snippets and doing some commentary on them. But if you are listening on audio only and you don't have access to the video, you might be missing something, part of the visual element here that might, well, I think could possibly assist with understanding who's saying what. Um, so if you have access to the video, I'd encourage people to watch the video. Anyway, we'll see how it goes. So let's just dive right in and commence with chapter 10, A Dream of Socrates. I'm going to go old school now and just read the introduction from the paper version of the book for a change. And David writes, to set the scene, Socrates is staying at an inn near the temple of the Oracle at Delphi. Delphi or Delphi? I suppose it depends upon your accent. Anyway, together with his friend Caiaphon, he has today asked the Oracle, who is the wisest man in the world, so that they might go and learn from him. But, to their annoyance, the priestess, who provides the oracle's voice on behalf of the god Apollo, merely announced, No one is wiser than Socrates. Sleeping now, on an uncomfortable bed in a tiny and exorbitantly expensive room, Socrates hears a deep, melodious voice intoning his name. And so, we're about to find out who that is. Greetings, Socrates. Go away. <sighs> I've already made too many offerings today, and you're not going to wring any more out of me. I'm too wise for that, hadn't you heard? I seek no offering. And what do you want? Oh, well, I'm sure that some of my associates camped outside will be glad to. It is not them that I seek, but you, O oh Socrates. Then you shall be disappointed, stranger. Now, kindly leave me to my hard-earned rest. Very well. Wait. I am asleep. Hmm, dreaming. And you are the god Apollo. What makes you think so? These precincts are sacred to you. It is night time and there is no lamp. Yet I see you clearly. This is not possible in real life, so you must be coming to me in a dream. You reason coolly. Are you not afraid? Bah! I ask you in return. Are you a benevolent god or a malevolent god? If benevolent, then what do I have to fear? If malevolent, then I disdain to fear you. We Athenians are a proud people and protected by our goddess, as you surely know. Twice we defeated the Persian Empire against overwhelming odds. And now we are defying Sparta. It is our custom to defy anyone who seeks our submission. Even a god. A benevolent god would not seek it. On the other hand, it is also our custom to give a hearing to anyone who offers us honest criticism, seeking to persuade us freely to change our minds. For we want to do what is right. So there we've got a problem with the worship of deities. Bad gods want fear so they don't deserve it. Good gods don't want fear so why fear them? The same might go for worship or any other demand a god traditionally is supposed to desire. Uh, in the next section, which I'm not going to read, Hermes says that he reveals no facts about anything, but he is there to reveal some knowledge about knowledge. Hermes is, of course, providing the Popperian view. But how did Popper himself ever come to this knowledge of knowledge? 
How did he create knowledge about knowledge? We don't know how creativity works, of course. We might ask how Darwin came to Darwinism or Einstein came up with relativity and so on. Problems confronted them and somehow in the mind, the solution presented itself. And first, we test that solution, that purported solution within the laboratory of our own minds, if you like, before checking it against external reality. So in the next section, Hermes asks Popper, what is easiest to see? And Popper responds that it is whatever is before your eyes. And Hermes asks him if he is sure about that. Very well. Obviously, I can't be sure of anything, but I don't want to be. I can think of nothing more boring, no offence meant, wise Apollo, than to attain the state of being perfectly secure in one's beliefs, which some people seem to yearn for. I see no use for it, other than to provide a semblance of an argument when one doesn't have a real one. Fortunately, that mental state has nothing to do with what I do yearn for, which is to discover the truth of how the world is, and why, and even more, of how it should be. Congratulations, Socrates, on your epistemological wisdom. The knowledge that you seek, objective knowledge, is hard to come by, but attainable. That mental state you do not seek, justified belief, is sought by many people, especially priests and philosophers. But in truth, beliefs cannot be justified, except in relation to other beliefs. And even then only fallibly. So the quest for their justification can lead only to an infinite regress, each step of which would be itself subject to error. Again, I know this. Indeed, and as you have rightly remarked, it doesn't count as a revelation if I tell you what you already know. Yet, notice that that remark is precisely what people who seek justified belief do not agree with. What? I'm sorry, but that was too convoluted a comment for my allegedly wise mind to comprehend. Please explain what I am to notice about these people who seek justified belief. Merely this. Suppose they just happen to be aware of the explanation of something. You and I would say they know it. But to them, no matter how good an explanation is, and no matter how true and important and useful it may be, they still do not consider it to be knowledge. It is only if a god then comes along and reassures them that it is true, or if they imagine such a god or other authority, that they count it as knowledge. So to them it does count as a revelation if the authority tells them what they are already fully aware of. I see that. And I see that they are foolish because, for all they know, the authority may be toying with them, or trying to teach them some important lesson, or they may be misunderstanding the authority, or they may be mistaken in their belief that it is an authority. Yes. So the thing that they call knowledge, namely justified belief, is a chimera. It is unattainable to humans except in the form of self-deception. It is unnecessary for any good purpose, and it is undesired by the wisest among mortals. I know. Xenophanes knew it too, but he is no longer among the mortals. So there we have a criticism of the JTB, Justified True Belief version of knowledge. Knowledge is not justified belief. It's not justified because if it was, then you'd have to wonder how the justifications are themselves justified and you'd end up with an infinite regress. You have to start somewhere on that view. You need a foundation which is absolutely certain. And if you have this absolutely certain foundation which is unjustified, from there you can start building your justifications to reach whatever the conclusion is that you have. This is the traditional and completely false view of epistemology. So as David says there, through Socrates and through Hermes, it's unnecessary to seek justification. The claim that something is actually true or probably true, it's unwise to, to seek that sort of validity. And of course, also notice that knowledge isn't about beliefs, which is a private going on inside of your mind, purportedly. None of that scheme is needed. We're, instead, we're right to say we know a thing when we have an explanation for it. It need not be justified. It need not be true or believed. And in fact, my favourite example of this is just uh, any old scientific theory which is nonetheless useful, and my favourite of those is, of course, Newton's theory of gravity, or Newton's law of gravity, as it's usually called. It's known to be false, so it can't be true, so it, it automatically fails at the T hurdle of JTB. Um, I don't believe it, and I don't think anyone does believe it because we know it to be false. So it's not, it fails at the B hurdle as well. And as for justified, well, we can't justify it as true knowing that it's completely false. Knowing that it's completely false. And it rests upon assumptions that are themselves not only not justified, but known to be false. So, for example, in Newton's theory of gravity, Newton's law of gravity, 
it rests upon this assumption that the gravity is a force between masses, but this force acts instantaneously, so it violates special relativity, so it can't be true. So in other words, Newton's law of gravity actually failed all three features of the JTB test. Nonetheless, nonetheless, we know it. I know it. Every student of physics knows it. It's a piece of knowledge. We still call it knowledge. It's useful. It helps us to make predictions and accomplish things like even get to the moon, for example. Okay, so Newton's theory, Newton's law of gravity is used. It's a bit of knowledge that is useful. It contains useful truth. But it ultimately, in the final analysis, is false. And it's not justified, it's not true, and no one should believe it. Knowledge, as David explains elsewhere, is useful information. And more precisely, elsewhere in the beginning of infinity, he explains that knowledge is that thing which, once it comes into being, tends to cause itself to remain so. So once it's instantiated in matter, it tends to cause itself to remain instantiated in matter in some way. It could be in different forms. But the thing about knowledge is it's self-sustaining in some way. And this is certainly true of Newton's theory, uh, it's a piece of knowledge that has caused itself to remain in place because it's so useful over time despite being shown to be false. It's also here in this section that we hear of Xenophides for the first time. Uh, we'll come back to him later. He was a philosopher, poet who lived from like 570 to 475 BC. So his death was about five years prior to the birth of Socrates. Whatever the case, if Popper is the father of critical rationalism, then I guess Xenophanes is like the great-great-great-great-great-grandfather in some sense. What follows now in the dialogue, and which I also won't read, is a very long section about what can actually be seen, what is obvious and right before our eyes and so on, and, whether we, and how we can rule out whether or not certain things are true on the basis of that, or whether we are dreaming uh, when we think we're seeing. Uh, what can Socrates be sure of? This is what Hermes is pressing him on. It seems to me that you've been asking questions about me. What is in front of me? What I can easily see? Whether I am sure, and so on. But I seek fundamental truths, of which I estimate that not a single one of them is predominantly about me. So let me stress again. I am not sure what is in front of my eyes. Ever. With my eyes open or closed, asleep or awake. Nor can I be sure what is probably in front of my eyes. For how could I estimate the probability that I am dreaming when I think I am awake? or that my whole previous life has been but a dream in which it has pleased one of you immortals to imprison me. Indeed. I might even be a victim of a mundane deception, such as those of conjurers. We know that a conjurer is deceiving us because he shows us something that cannot be, and then asks for money. But if he were to forgo his fee and show me something that can be but is not, how could I ever know? Perhaps this entire vision of you is not a dream after all, but some cunning conjurer's trick. On the other hand, perhaps you really are here in person, and I am awake after all. None of this can I ever be sure is so, or not so. I can, however, conceive of knowing some of it. Precisely. And is the same true of your moral knowledge? In regards to what is right and wrong, could you be mistaken or misled by the equivalent of mirages or tricks? Well, that seems a little harder to imagine. For in regard to moral knowledge, I need my senses very little. It is just mainly my own thoughts. I reason about what is right and wrong, or what makes a person virtuous or wicked. I can be mistaken, of course, in these mental deliberations, but not so easily deceived by outside tricks or illusions. For they affect only our senses, and not our reason. How then do you account for the fact that you Athenians are constantly squabbling among yourselves about what qualities constitute virtue or vice, and what actions are right or wrong? Why is that puzzling? We disagree because it is easy to be mistaken. Yet despite that, we also agree about many such issues. From this, I speculate, where we have failed so far to agree, it is not because anything is actively deceiving us, but simply because some issues are hard to reason about. Just as there are many truths in geometry that even Pythagoras did not know, but which future geometers may discover. As that otherwise mortal Xenophanes wrote, the gods did not reveal from the beginning all things to us, but in the course of time, through seeking, we may learn and know things better. That is, what we Athenians have done in regard to moral knowledge. Through seeking, we have learned and agreed upon the easy things, and in future, by the same means, namely by refusing to hold any of our ideas immune from criticism, we may learn some matters not so light. So, in that section, Socrates thinks it is harder to be deceived about moral issues, because in that domain, his reason, so he argues, is the sole arbiter of what is true. 
But Hermes goes on to point out that Sparta teaches their children wildly different moral lessons compared to Athens, and this causes Socrates to begin teasing apart the differences between Athens and Sparta. He arrives at the conclusion that the difference between these two societies is all about endless critical debate, which Athens engages in, but which Sparta prohibits. So here we're connecting a very epistemological concern about how it is we come to understand knowledge, we come to understand some truth about the world, and the extent to which a society is open or closed or dynamic and static. So we've got a connection, we've drawn a straight line connection between epistemology in that way and morality and, and, and political systems. Moreover, since the Spartans never seek improvement, it is not surprising that they never find it. We, in contrast, have sought it by constantly criticizing and debating and trying to correct our ideas and behavior, and thereby we are well placed to learn more in the future. It follows then that it is wrong of the Spartans to educate their children to hold their city's ideas, laws, and customs immune from criticism. Wait, I thought you weren't going to reveal moral truths. I can't help it if it follows logically from epistemology. But anyway, you already know this one. Yes, I do. And I see what you are getting at. You are showing me that there are such things as mirages and tricks in regards to moral knowledge. Some of them are embedded in the Spartans' traditional moral choices. Their whole way of life misleads and traps them, because one of their mistaken beliefs is that they must take no steps to prevent their way of life from misleading and trapping them. So there we have it. The moral imperative not to destroy the means of error correction is the only moral imperative from which others follow. If we want to continue being a society that makes progress, continue being dynamic, a society that prevents itself from being destroyed through stasis, we must continue to generate knowledge. But that is only possible if debate is allowed. So speech has to be free, people have to be free, and so on. In short, we cannot have laws or customs in place that hold ideas, laws, and customs immune from criticism. So I'll say that again. We can't have laws or customs in place that themselves hold ideas, laws, and customs immune from criticism. We need to protect error correction, not prevent it. So I'm skipping another lengthy section again, and Hermes is about to lead Socrates into a defense of fallibilism. Yet there is even more of a difference than you think. Bear in mind that the Spartans and Athenians alike are but fallible men and are subject to misconceptions and errors in all their thinking. Wait. We are fallible in all our thinking? Is there literally no idea that we may hold immune from criticism? Like what? Mm, well, what about the truths of arithmetic, like 2 plus 2 equals 4? Or the fact that Delphi exists? What about the geometrical fact that the angles of a triangle sum to two right angles? Revealing no facts, I cannot confirm that all three of those propositions are even true. But more important is this, how did you come to choose those particular propositions as candidates for immunity from criticism? Why Delphi and not Athens? Why 2 plus 2 and not 3 plus 4? Why not the theorem of Pythagoras? Was it because you decided that the propositions you chose would best make your point because they were the most obviously, unambiguously, true of all the propositions you considered using? Yes. But then how did you determine how obviously and unambiguously true each of those candidate propositions was, compared with the others. Did you not criticize them? Did you not quickly attempt to think of ways or reasons they might conceivably be false? Yes, I did. I see. Had I held them immune from criticism, I would have had no way of arriving at that conclusion. So you are, after all, a thorough-going fallibilist, though you mistakenly believed you were not. I merely doubted it. You doubted and criticized fallibilism itself, as a true fallibilist should. That is so. Moreover, had I not criticized it, I could not have come to understand why it is true. My doubt improved my knowledge of an important truth, as knowledge held immune from criticism can never be improved. This too you already knew. For it is why you always encourage everyone to criticize even that which seems most obvious to you and why I set an example by doing it to them. Perhaps. Now consider. What would happen if the fallible Athenian voters made a mistake and enacted a law that was very unwise and unjust? Which, alas, they often do. 
Imagine a specific case for the sake of argument. Suppose they were somehow firmly persuaded that thieving is a high virtue from which many practical benefits flow, and that they abolished all laws forbidding it. What would happen? Everyone would start thieving. Very soon, those who were best at thieving and at living among the thieves would become the wealthiest citizens. But most people would no longer be secure in their property, even most thieves. And the farmers and artisans and traders would soon find it impossible to continue to produce anything worth stealing. So disaster and starvation would follow, while the promised benefits would not. And they would all realize they had been mistaken. Would they? Let me remind you again of the fallibility of human nature, Socrates. Given that they were firmly persuaded that thievery was beneficial, wouldn't their first reaction to those setbacks be that there was not enough thievery going on? Wouldn't they enact laws to encourage it still further? Alas, yes. At first. Yet, no matter how firmly they were persuaded, these setbacks would be problems in their lives, which they would want to solve. A few among them would eventually begin to suspect that increased thievery might not be the solution after all, so they would think about it more. They would have been convinced of the benefits of thievery by some explanation or other. Now they would try to explain why the supposed solution didn't seem to be working. Eventually, they would find an explanation that seemed better. So gradually, they would persuade others of that, and so on, until the majority again opposed thievery. So there we have a great defense of fallibilism. All it means is that nothing is to be held immune from criticism. That's what fallibilism is about. And when a budding fallibilist comes along and says something like, well, what about two plus two equals four? Classic response. Surely that, surely that thing we cannot possibly doubt. Well, the response to such a person is, how did you come to that particular claim? Why did you choose that particular claim out of all the possible claims that you could have picked? You picked two plus two equals four or one plus one equals two, whatever. Whatever claim a budding fallibilist comes up with to try and refute the idea of fallibilism, what they've done is actually criticize a claim, found they couldn't discover any criticisms, and presented that one to you. So the response is that finding no criticism does not make you anti-fallibilist. The key is whether you attempted to find some flaw with an idea and then failed to. So you doubted it. You really did doubt this idea for a moment and maybe maybe automatically, unconsciously in a way. But the point is that one's personal inability, or indeed the entire civilization's inability to find a flaw with some idea is no proof of its certain absolute truth. Like, I mean, it could be that, it could be certain absolute truth, but it could also be false because we just lack imagination. We lack sufficient creativity to figure out What's wrong with that idea? What could possibly be false about that idea? And if you can't think of anything that could possibly be false about that idea, that doesn't mean that idea couldn't still in principle be false. It could just mean that you've got pathetic abilities to imagine. Like, for example, um, for centuries, people thought that Newton's law of gravity was absolutely certain truth. They really did. And for centuries, people thought that Euclidean geometry was the absolute truth about literal physical space. But both were shown to be false, and in fact by the same theory, by general relativity. People once thought that God created all the life on Earth. They couldn't imagine how it was otherwise, until Darwin did and gave a good explanation of how it was possible. And here, in my opinion, some people might not like this opinion, we also connect fallibilism and epistemology and morality to a defense of capitalism or free trade against, say, alternatives like communism. The choices between can you own private property, make a claim on certain private property, or are other people allowed to take it from you, okay, because they've agreed or decided that you have no right to it? In other words, can stealing be a virtue? So this is why I think it's kind of the communist or socialist worldview that certain kinds of th stealing, certain kinds of thievery are okay. But that, that perspective, that perspective that some kinds are okay and maybe we'd want to increase the number of things that could be stolen until all stealing becomes a kind of a virtue. That's where we go in the, taking this theory to its extreme. But that's going to run up against some logical problems eventually. Like no one will feel safe in such a society and eventually we'll simply run out of things to steal. And when such a theory about how to organize society fails, and it will fail, 
The response, as Hermes suggests here, and that Socrates arrives at, is that people won't necessarily, once it fails, give up on the idea that thievery is bad. If they've decided it's virtue in some way, then their immediate response will not be to dismiss that theory of thievery as being a virtue, but rather think, we haven't been doing enough of it. We should steal some more, which tends to be the kind of socialist conclusion that when lots and lots of welfare or socialism generally occurs in a society, but the society isn't really thriving, the response is to do more of it, to tax more, to increase the amount of welfare. And things will continue to get worse, but in general, the socialists won't think socialism's a bad idea. It's socialism that's the problem. They will just try and instantiate ever more of it. They always want to move towards more theft and confiscation and so on. But I'm taking David's parable from Hermes uh, probably a little further than he intended there. And David also says here, through again, through Hermes and Socrates, that although mandating thievery would be bad, or regarding it as a virtue would be bad, it's not the worst thing that can happen. After all, eventually someone would figure out a better explanation and would decide there are better ways to run society than having one built upon theft. And this will come about through thought and explanation and persuasion, which is what Athens is typically up to. But then we come to the explanation of how there is one kind of error, one law that could be made that is a special case. That one kind of law resists thought and explanation and persuasion. And Hermes is about to tell us what it is. How you must laugh at us. Not at all, Athenian. As I said, I honour you. Now, let us consider what would happen if instead of legalising thievery, their error had been to ban debate and to ban philosophy and politics and elections and that whole constellation of activities and to consider them shameful. I see. That would have the effect of banning persuasion, and hence it would block off a path to salvation that we have discussed. This is a rare and deadly sort of error. It prevents itself from being undone. Or at least it makes salvation immensely more difficult, yes. And this is what Sparta looks like to me. So, free speech is a special case, as we can see. It provides the conditions within which all other debates, moral, political, economic, scientific, mathematical, philosophical, can be incrementally improved. As we cannot predict the growth of knowledge, the argument that there is some speech or some things that can never be said is a claim about knowing that in the future such things will not possibly form an ingredient in the growth of knowledge. We can always think of terrible examples about, well, what about terribly racist things? We shouldn't be able to say those. What about so-called hate speech? Surely there are some things which we can completely rule out. Well, the problem with proscribing speech in that way is that it causes the debate around that speech to also be shut down. So anyone who wants to explain why such things are bad to say in the first place can't say them. They can't say the very thing that they want to be able to discuss the evil of. And so in an open society, instead of having laws which will send people to jail for saying certain bad things, we can more easily distinguish between the people over there who are saying the bad things for certain bad reasons, and the people over here who are discussing certain things, and the people who are making jokes. But the law is often too blunt an instrument to make these distinctions. And insofar as it tries to make these distinctions, people can still be taken to court. People can still be hauled away by the police, or simply suffer the inconvenience of having to stand in front of a judge and, and argue that they're not, they weren't saying things for the bad reasons that they deserve to go to jail for or deserve to be fined for, but they were of the good kind. And all of this has the terrible effect of dampening down speech, of causing people to be very quiet, where they otherwise would be openly debating things. Just a little bit of a divergence here. So it's worth saying that recently there have been two kinds of attacks on free speech that have occurred, and I'm sure these kind of attacks have happened generations past as well. The first is the attack against free speech by some governments, and this is truly frightening. This means the apparatus of the state in certain countries, the state force, state violence, guns, police, can be brought to bear against people for what they say. It might be a joke or it might be satire or whatever, but if certain things cannot be said because they are deemed hate, then we create circumstances where there are roadblocks to discussing why those things are wrong. 
If we cannot say those things, we cannot say those things for the purpose of discussing the rightness or wrongness of those things. We cannot improve our ideas about those things and we cannot easily correct those people who think but do not say those things for fear of arrest. A very good way of countering evil hate speech is to make fun of it, is to do comedy or satire. But often judges and lawyers aren't the best people to distinguish between what's comedy and what's serious. The average person is, but a highly learned lawyer might end up regarding something that was said in jest as being quite serious. And then some poor person gets sent off to jail, mistakenly. If you didn't have such laws, no such mistakes would be possible. Okay, so that's the, that's the government attack upon speech. But there's another kind of attack on free speech as well. So in a place like the United States, which is actually really rare, um, I don't know of another country that has codified in the same way, rights that protect free speech in law, in their constitution. So while they have free speech protected from the intrusions of government to a large degree, there is some attacks on free speech that the government is rather powerless to address in quite such a direct way. And that is the social or cultural pressure on free speech. So we have large social movements who sometimes even go all the way to using violence to attack people who say certain things, to try and suppress certain kinds of speech. It is small comfort in those particular circumstances if the government and police will let you say whatever the truth happens to be, the sky is blue. But if you do say it, there might be the people who say that, no, that's hate speech for whatever ridiculous reason they might have to label such a thing hate speech. But because you say this thing that is eminently true, or it might just simply be your opinion, you might decide to say um, the sky is red because here in New South Wales at the moment in Australia, there's been a lot of bushfires and the sky has been red quite often. Whatever the case, certain people might think that certain speech is so beyond the pale that you deserve to be attacked in the street for it. So although the government will allow you to say it, there might be groups of people that won't allow you to say it. And even if they don't go all the way to attacking you in the street, they could have boycotts against you, they could slander you, etc., etc. And so again, it's cold comfort to people who are attacked for saying certain things that their being attacked was unlawful. For knowledge growth and progress to occur in a maximized way, not only must the law protect free speech, but the culture also has to be one of non-violence. And when the culture begins to say things like, hate speech is violence, or hate speech is not free speech, then we have a proxy means by which the powerful groups in society, despite what the government's doing, these powerful groups or other powerful interests, ban certain forms of debate. And if that is taken seriously, then regardless of what the letter of the law is, we find ourselves in a cultural circumstance where we have an error that is preventing itself from being undone. Now, of course, happily, things aren't quite that bad right now. In the United States, the great strength is that it is a state-based nation. So as bad as things get in one community with clampdowns on certain kinds of speech by certain groups... There's always another community equally as strong somewhere else in the country which will protect the speaker. So there are places to go for people that are more safe. But where such movements even begin, we need to be cautious. I mention the United States here because it really is kind of the ideal with respect to this in law. In the West, elsewhere, as free as speech might be, it's not as free as it is in the United States. People are being locked up elsewhere, or if they're not being locked up, they're at, at, at minimum being investigated for things said. So there are certain things in other Western countries that cannot be said, hence cannot be debated, and hence cannot be corrected, um, except within the national parliaments, of course, but that's hardly reassuring. And I won't even mention the countries that aren't Western countries. In those places, um, of course, free speech is absolutely uh, not on the cards yet. So I'm skipping a little more here. I also see why you urge me always to bear human fallibility in mind. In fact, since you mentioned that some moral truths follow logically from epistemological considerations, I am now wondering whether they all do. Could it be that the moral imperative not to destroy the means of correcting errors is the only moral imperative? That is, all other moral truths follow from it. As you wish. 
Now, in regards to Athens and what you were saying about epistemology, if our prospects for discovering new knowledge are so good, why were you stressing the unreliability of the senses? I was correcting your description of the quest for knowledge as striving to see beyond what it is easy to see. I meant that metaphorically. See in the sense of understand. Yes. Nevertheless, you have considered that even those things that you thought were easiest to see literally are, in fact, not easy to see at all without prior knowledge about them. In fact, nothing is easy to see without prior knowledge. All knowledge of the world is hard to come by. Moreover... Moreover, it follows that we do not come by it through seeing. It does not flow into us through our senses. Exactly. Yet you say that objective knowledge is attainable. So, if it does not come to us through the senses, where does it come from? Suppose I were to tell you that all knowledge comes from persuasion. Persuasion again? Well, I would reply, with all due respect, that that makes no sense. Whoever persuades me of something must first have discovered it in himself. So in such a case, the relevant issue is where his knowledge came from. And right there, we've got the argument against empiricism. As a side note, this seems to be one of the more contentious parts of Papyrian epistemology, and I'm not really sure why. People really do think that seeing is believing, or that we can understand the world as it is, by looking, okay, by observing. Uh, this is why that alternative epistemology, sometimes called objectivism, is something I have long thought is perverse in calling itself objectivism. Certainly in the epistemological sense, it's entirely subjectivist on this point. It says that human senses, the internal psychological workings of the human mind are a way to get direct knowledge from the world. In other words, the individual subject can come to know reality using their senses in some way. But the senses, this empiricist mistake, the senses are able to derive knowledge from the world out there. But we cannot detect most of what we know to exist, so it can't come to us through the senses. All the interesting truths of science, essentially, are not about what we sense. So the Big Bang, evolution by natural selection, uh, the existence of quarks, stellar fusion, germ theory, all these things can be known without us ever needing to see directly any of them. It's always explaining the seen in terms of the unseen, which is an amazing part of actual epistemology. So it takes knowledge creation and criticism away from whatever your fallible senses are up to and puts it in a domain of explanation, an explanation of things that cannot possibly be verified or checked by the senses. Now, someone might object a little here and say, well, it's not the senses alone. We use technology, okay? You can't see bacteria, but with a microscope you can, or you can't see what happened at the Big Bang, but you can use telescopes to find the cosmic microwave background, okay? So it's not your senses. That's not what we meant. You can use instruments, and the instruments um, don't wake up on the wrong side of the bed. The instruments aren't subject to optical illusions. Well, aren't they subject to illusions? It may be that we can augment our senses through the use of technology. But all that does is put us in a domain of understanding how the technology works. And understanding how the technology works is a theory or an explanation about how the technology works. And that could be false. And so to use Popper's theory, our senses remain theory-laden all the time. We have a certain idea about how the senses work, how our eyesight works. The photons enter the eye, they hit the cornea, they travel through the vitreous humour, they go through the lens of the eye, they eventually reach the retina where there are rods and cones, and inside the rods and cones there's um, certain chemicals. These chemicals, when the light hits them, uh, change shape, and that changing of the shape sends electrical impulses down the optic nerve, which reaches the visual cortex. Okay, This is how seeing works. But that, that whole chain of causation I just gave you there, that's a theory. That's an explanation. That could be wrong. We don't... We know that it's correct. We know that it's correct, but we don't certainly know that it's correct. All knowledge is conjectural. All knowledge is fallible. Things could be different to what I've just told you. And so too with our technology. So our technology is theory-laden. This is what it means by theory-laden. How is it? How do we understand how our senses work? How is it we understand how our telescopes work or our microscopes or anything else we use to, to detect scientific stuff? So if we were to find that our explanation of how any of these things, the technology or our senses work, if we found it was false in a crucial way, then the knowledge that we had thought we'd constructed using that sense data could 
could turn out to be false. This happens in science, by the way, all the time. It's called systematic error. If you think you know how your telescope works um, and you're making highly precise measurements and these highly precise measurements could be due to error, but you're not sure and you repeatedly do the same experiment over and over again and you get the same consistent results, it looks like your results are reliable. What reliable means is you're getting the same result every single time. But if there's some flaw with your telescope, some noise that's there that you didn't realize, then in fact, although you've got highly reliable data, it could all be completely false because your theory about what the telescope was doing was wrong. And so the knowledge that you think you've created is in fact false. Now, there's a real life example of this. Um, if you look up the changing fine structure constant, this is precisely what happened. Um, the fine structure constant, I won't go into it, I've talked about it on previous episodes actually, but the University of New South Wales did a big study on this. And it looked for all the world, because all the results seem to agree, that the fine structure constant was changing. And if the fine structure constant was changing, this was kind of a big deal. It meant one of the fundamental constants of nature was changing. Perhaps the speed of light was different in the past. Perhaps um, the charge on an electron was different in the past. It's very interesting. I won't go into it now. The point here is that the theory that was being used that explained how the telescope worked that was taking the readings was wrong. We had a theory-laden observation and that introduced a, introduced a systematic error which ultimately meant the conclusion was false, namely the fine structure constant was not changing after all. Okay, so whatever the case, we interpret the data from our technology, we interpret the data from our sensors, and like we say, it's, it's, it's interpretations all the way down. And then we move on to the discussion with Socrates and Hermes forward, uh, where they become engaged about, they become engaged in concerns about the source of knowledge. Hermes is attempting to impart to Socrates the idea that knowledge doesn't come from outside of him. But Socrates isn't quite so sure, like namely the knowledge that Hermes is giving Socrates right now about epistemology, isn't that coming from Hermes? But Hermes wonders, well, what, what if I'm just a figment of your imagination, Socrates? Now, if I am only a figment of your imagination, then who has persuaded you? Presumably I myself, unless this dream is coming neither from you nor from within myself, but from another source. But did you not say that you were open to persuasion by anyone? If dreams emanate from an unknown source, what difference should that make? If they are persuasive, are you not honor-bound as an Athenian to accept them? It seems that I am. But what if a dream were to emanate from a malevolent source? That makes no fundamental difference either. Suppose that the source purports to tell you a fact. Then if you suspect that the source is malevolent, you will try to understand what evil it is trying to perpetuate by telling you the alleged fact. But then, depending upon your explanation, you may well decide to believe it anyway. So, we can conclude that the source of knowledge is not important. The source in a real sense is within us. We create it, then criticize it by our own lights. So objective knowledge is attainable, and it doesn't matter where it appears to come from. We do not judge ideas by their sources. Of course it does. Do you remember what Xenophanes wrote just after he said that objective knowledge is attainable by humans? Yes, the passage continues. But as for certain truth, no man has known it, nor will he know it, neither of the gods, nor yet of all the things of which I speak. And even if by chance he were to utter the perfect truth, he himself would not know it. So there, he's saying that although objective knowledge is attainable, justified belief, certain truth, is not. Yes, we've covered all that, but your answer is in the next line. For all is a woven web of guesses. Guesses? Yes, conjectures. But wait, what about when knowledge does not come from guesswork? As when a god sends me in a dream. What about when I simply hear ideas from other people? They may have guessed them, but I obtain them merely by listening. You do not. In all those cases, you still have to guess in order to acquire the knowledge. I do? Of course. Have you yourself not often been misunderstood even by people trying hard to understand you? Yes. Have you in turn not often misunderstood what someone means even when he is trying to tell you as clearly as he can? Indeed I have. Not least during this conversation. <laughs> and this brings to mind Popper's I guess you could call it his criterion of comprehensibility. 
It is impossible to speak in such a way as to not be misunderstood. So I'm going to skip a little here and then... Indeed, most guesses are not new knowledge. Although guesswork is the origin of all knowledge, it is also a source of error. And therefore, what happens to an idea after it has been guessed is crucial. So... Let me combine this insight with what I know of criticism. A guess might come from a dream, or it might just be a wild speculation, or a random combination of ideas, or anything. But then, we do not just accept it blindly because we imagine it is authorized, or because we want it to be true. Instead, we criticize it and try to discover its flaws. Yes, that is what you should do at any rate. Then we try to remedy those flaws by altering the idea, or dropping it in favor of others, and the alterations and the other ideas are themselves guesses and are themselves criticized. Only when we fail in these attempts either to reject or improve an idea do we provisionally accept it. I'm skipping a little bit more here. It all comes from within, from conjecture and criticism. Wait, it comes from within even if revealed by a god. And is just as fallible as ever. Yes, your argument covers that case just like any other. Marvelous. But now, what about the objects that we experience in the natural world? We reach out and touch an object and hence experience it out there. Surely that is a different kind of knowledge, a kind which, fallible or not, really does come from without. At least in the sense that our own experience is out there at the location of the object. You love the idea that all those other different kinds of knowledge originate in the same way and are improved in the same way. Why is direct sensory experience an exception? What if it just seems radically different? But surely you are now asking me just to believe in a sort of all-encompassing conjuring trick resembling the fanciful notion that the whole of life is really is just a dream. For it would mean that the sensation of touching an object does not happen where I experience it happening, namely in the hand that touches, but in the mind, which I believe is located somewhere in the brain. So all my sensations of touch are located inside my skull, where in reality nothing can touch while I still live. And whenever I think I am seeing a vast, brilliantly illuminated landscape, all that I am really experiencing is likewise located entirely inside my skull, where, in reality, it is constantly dark. Is that so absurd? Where do you think all the sights and sounds of this dream are located? I accept that they are indeed in my mind. But that is my point. Most dreams portray things that are simply not there in the external reality. To portray things that are there is surely impossible without some input that does not come from the mind, but from those things themselves. Well reasoned, Socrates. But is that input needed in the source of your dream? Or only in your ongoing criticism of it? You mean that we first guess what is there and then what? We test our guesses against the input from our senses? Yes. I see. And then we hone our guesses and then fashion the best ones into a sort of waking dream of reality. Yes, a waking dream that corresponds to reality. But there is more. It is a dream of which you then gain control. You do that by controlling the corresponding aspects of the external reality. It is a wonderfully unified theory and consistent as far as I can tell. But am I really to accept that I myself, the thinking being that I call I, has no direct knowledge of the physical world at all, but can only receive arcane hints of it through flickers and shadows that happen to impinge upon my eyes and other senses? And that what I experience as reality is never more than a waking dream, composed of conjectures originating from within myself. Do you have an alternative explanation? No. And the more I contemplate this one, the more delighted I become. A sensation of which I should beware. Yet, I am also persuaded. Everyone knows that man is the paragon of animals, but if this epistemology you tell me is true, then we are infinitely more marvellous creatures than that. Here we sit, forever imprisoned in the dark, almost sealed cave of our skull, guessing. We weave stories of an outside world, worlds actually, a physical world, a moral world, a world of abstract geometrical shapes and so on, but we are not satisfied with merely weaving nor with mere stories. We want true explanations. So we seek explanations that remain robust when we test them against those flickers and shadows, and against each other, and against criteria of logic and reasonableness and everything else we can think of. And when we can change them no more, we have understood some objective truth. And if that were not enough, what we understand we then control. It is like magic only real. We are like gods. Well, sometimes you discover some objective truth and exert some control as a result. But often when you think you have achieved any of that, you haven't. So that's all wonderful. And again, follows from some material in the fabric of reality. 
Our minds really are a kind of virtual reality. We are virtual reality ourselves, constantly checking against actual reality and updating our model of the external world inside of our minds. Now, this is a very powerful idea that contains within it lots of known philosophy and science as well. Namely, we are programs of a kind. Our mind is a program. It's a bit of software. What kind? Well, it's, it's a creative explanation-generating kind. Um, explanation of what? Well, everything, um, including the external reality uh, that we find ourselves in. Um, our explanations, often explicit, of that external um, physical world, they're the things that, in a sense, illuminate our mind. The illumination of the actual physical world is incurring, strangely, within the utter darkness of our own brains. In there, it is actually physically completely dark. But that is where the bright lights of the waking world are being generated and presented to our consciousness. Of course, there are actual real lights in the, in the external world, but those lights only enter our eyes before they are completely absorbed and destroyed okay, at our retina. They are then converted into electrical impulses, and it's then that we have the experience of light. But the light that we have the experience of inside of our minds is not the same as the light that's outside of our minds. Yes, it's unusual to think of things in this way. All of our senses, the sight, taste, touch, smell, hearing, it's all happening inside the mind and just checked again with respect to what is happening outside. And then we update our ideas and all of this is completely fallible. The checking might go wrong. The neurons might misfire. The senses can deceive you. But nonetheless, we learn more and more and understand and thus gain more and more control over the external world. As Socrates says, All right, but if we choose to, are you saying that there is no upper bound to how much we can eventually understand and control and achieve? Funny you should ask that. Generations from now, a book will be written which will provide a compelling... And excellent. There's Hermes hinting at the writing of the beginning of infinity, indicating that he does appear to be a time traveler of some sorts. And there I'm going to end part one. We've only had two characters so far, so next time I have to introduce some of the rest of the cast. Wouldn't it be nice if someone actually did produce a, produce a live-action version of um, this little play? Maybe that's the next thing we can hope for, um, blockbuster philosophy. Until next time.